0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au All right, good morning everybody. Happy Father's Day to the daddies and to the daddies-to-be and... Uh, Happy Father's Day to the mums and, and carers who are stepping in for daddies. And um, yeah, it's a great privilege to be a daddy and uh, a great privilege to have had a good daddy. And, um, and just the greatest privilege in the world to know God as daddy. So it's a good day today. Great day to celebrate. Uh, we've come to the 11th uh, to the ninth of 10 um, of our sermons in 1 Thessalonians. The last one I'm going to be preaching because uh, this week uh, and next week kind of form two parts of the same sermon from the same last uh, bunch of verses in this letter. and uh, we have the privilege of having Phil Pike preach for us next week, uh, the final sermon in this series and the final, Sunday that he and Petra will be with us before they move into state. so uh, we're going to take this passage between the two of us and um, it's a difficult passage to preach through because Paul kind of gets to the end of his letter and then he does he does what that, that, that thing that preachers sometimes do. I've never do this but to the, you know when the preacher says uh, something like and, and finally, and then he goes on to give you another 30 minutes. That's kind of like what Paul's doing. He's just shoving every last little exhortation he can into this last little bit of the passage. You get about, I think it's 13 exhortations. Do this, do this, do this. Um, and I think it's like he's, he's just got to the end. He realizes that there's so much that he didn't get to share with the Thessalonians before he got chased out of town, and so he's trying to fit everything he can Um, into the last part of this letter. And so we're going to attempt to cover that over the next uh, two sermons. Um, But something that has obviously just been a recurring theme throughout the sermons um, that we've seen so far in this book is something that I didn't really notice until we got to this series, and that is just how deeply Paul cares for these Christians back in Thessalonica, and I know one of you remarked to me recently just how how that had really impacted you. Given that he only had a few weeks with them, the depth of feeling that he has for them is just is pretty f- profound. Like you, you've seen in every chapter, uh, Paul has been referring back to this great love and and deep care he has, he and Timothy and Silvanus, what they have for this church in Thessalonica. So just to review a couple of these from chapter 1 and verse 2 to 3, um, it says, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the, the triumvirate that he's referred to throughout this letter, the evidence that these people are truly saved. And as he thinks of them, he not only recalls the kind of Christians they were, but the deep love he has for them. And so he goes on in, in chapter 2, he says again in verse 7 and 8, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, that is, Although we could have like, relied on you to, f- 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 to fulfill all of our needs, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. That's the image he has of a, of a nursing mother. Later in, I think it's verse 11, he refers to himself as a, as a father to them. Um, but he goes on, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. He wasn't just there to preach a message. He wasn't an itinerant who just came into town and stood on a box in the corner of the street and and yelled. He shared the gospel of God and his life because they had become so dear to him. And again, in chapter 3, in verse 9 to 10, he says, how can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience Before our God, because of you, as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. So, this is what he was experiencing this deep sense of love for these people but it was also what triggered his kind of anxiety for them that that he hadn't had enough time with them that that he desperately wanted to get back so that he could complete what was lacking in their understanding of the gospel and this is what's driving him this last chapter just to to throw out as many exhortations as he can this love that he felt for them that he and and Timothy and Silvanus, this love that the, these these apostles, these missionaries felt with, for this church, it wasn't just a general kind of wishing the best. It wasn't just a kind of sending good vibes. This was—it wasn't an, a kind of aimless love. It was a very purposeful love. He didn't—he didn't just wish them well. His love for them was connected to the mission that had led him to them in the first place. So it was a purpose-driven kind of love. It was a mission-driven kind of love. The love that, that took him into Europe in the first place and to share the gospel with them in spite of all of the danger that he was in, that love is connected to that mission. And he wants them deeply not only to know Christ but to grow in Christ. That's what gets Paul up in the morning. This deep passion that people would not just know, but would grow, grow more and more like Christ, grow more and more in fellowship with Christ, grow more and more in the the depth of their affection and love for Christ, their Messiah. This is what gets Paul out of bed in the morning. This is how he says it when he writes to the Colossian church. Just hear his passion here. He says, We proclaim Jesus, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. That's what his life is all about. He's left behind fame and riches and comforts and he has given himself, poured himself out in laboring to this end. That people everywhere would know Jesus. That he would be able to present them to Jesus mature in Christ. That is growing Daily in Christ likeness, growing daily in their understanding of the gospel, in their understanding of the kingdom of God that Jesus brought into being in his life and ministry. Just let you into a little bit of a secret here. In our household, I know this isn't true in your house, but in our household, Our kids don't always do what we tell them to do the first time. And uh, it's a bit of a recurring theme in our house. Um, We tell the kids what to do, and they don't do it immediately. And they'll often protest against doing what we tell them to do, or they'll ask, Why? Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? And sometimes I'll be a bad dad and just say, because I told you to. And sometimes I'll be a bit more like God and I'll explain to them why it is that I'm telling them to do the thing that I'm telling them. And the big idea that we share with them whenever we're having this discussion and uh, I've been patient enough to take the time, the big idea we share with them is that as parents... We have been um, given our kids on loan from God to steward them, right? To take care of them. And, and the big idea that God has given us, the big purpose we have, is exactly the one that he gave to Paul that he explained there in the Colossians passage. He, he, God has given us our children so that one day we can present them mature one day we can come to the end of our role as parents, uh, that is, as parents who have charge of our dependent children, and we can say, we have labored and toiled with everything that he so perfectly, so powerfully works within us to present them mature. Yes, mature in Christ, and yes, mature as adults. This is why we keep telling you to do these things. This is why we ask you to use knife and fork, not hands, right? This this is the this is the reason that we, we tell you all of these things. We we do we give you all these exhortations and imperatives. It's so that we can present you mature. It's the same here. Paul's deep desire is that through warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom he might present everyone mature in Christ. Now that's a pretty lofty some might say a pretty uh, unattainable almost vision for this church in Thessalonica. This church that is so young, so outnumbered in the culture around them, that is so incomplete in their understanding of the gospel. This church that only had a few weeks with Paul and Silvanus, this church of pagan converts who are trying to learn how to live as Christians in a world that has no concept of what it is to be a Christian. That's a pretty lofty goal, this desire of Paul's that they would be made complete, that they would be sanctified, that they would be made more like Jesus. Jesus. think about it, this small group of pagan converts in the capital city of northern Greece in a context where culture is overwhelmingly opposed to this new belief that they have that's turned the world upside down, remember that from Acts 17, that, that that Paul has that hope for these New Christians. They've gone from a culture where Caesar is Lord. You'd literally, around the town, around Thessaloniki, you would have signs up reminding everyone, Caesar is Lord. And now they're owning this belief for themselves that Jesus is Lord and they can be only one they've gone from a, a kind of religious upbringing a discipleship model that has has shaped the way they think about religion about the gods about worship they've gone from a situation where they would go to the temple to sleep with temple prostitutes to now being told that they are a temple of the holy spirit that they're called to holiness They've gone from a situation where they were experiencing relatively relative safety, relative peace under the Roman Empire in northern Greece, in Thessalonica. At that time, the Pax Romana had been chugging along now for about 40, 50 years. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, this kind of enforced peace wherever Rome was in charge, that as long as you... Swear fealty to the Caesar, as long as you say Caesar is Lord, you will enjoy the prosperity of Rome. You will enjoy the peace of Rome. And now, all of a sudden, they're going from having that relative safety and peace to being persecuted, to suffering, because of their fealty to the Lord Jesus. All of this is happening at once, and they're only guides through this new thing called Christian faith have been taken away from them and all they have now is this letter written to them and Paul still has this lofty vision for them that they would grow in Christ's likeness, that they would be made mature and complete in Him, that they would persevere in Christian faith. It's no easy task. If God's not in it, then it's absolutely going to fail. That's what he mentioned. Remember, um, he had this fear uh, back in chapter 3. Uh, let's have a look. I think it's in verse 5 of chapter 3. He, he, he has this fear that the tempter might be tempting this church and that their, their labor as missionaries might be for nothing, might be in vain. So these are the stakes that he's dealing with. He wants them to grow in Christ's likeness, but he knows that there is a chance that it's all been for nothing, that they'll just simply walk back to Caesar as Lord. Some people have conceived of this idea, and you might be able to relate to this, this idea of coming to faith and then trying to learn how to live this whole new life. Trying to live in in a whole different orbit where now Jesus is Lord and that makes a complete that that inaugurates a complete change in how I think about myself, how I think about the world, how I'm called to behave and think that everything changes. A new kingdom has come. And so we spend much of our time, and you can see this with new Christians, they, they 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 stumble as they try and figure out their, how to walk as Christians. Other people have conceived of this as kind of like learning a new language. Coming to faith and then learning how to live as Christians for the rest of our lives is like mastering a new language. It's not something that happens overnight. When we're new Christians, it's something that we have to think through. Like, If, if you have any experience of learning a new language, I have very little. I've tried um, but it's all like maths to me. It's really hard for my brain to understand it. Um, but uh, when I was learning Koine Greek, the New Testament Greek, this is what I experienced. You, you, you when you first start out, it's all new, and all the the, the new grammatical rules and, and 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 different ways of conceiving of how to say things, the order of words, all of it is kind of overwhelming. And then you kind of pick up some of the rules, some of the the um. The, the, the structure of the language and it comes a little easier but still as you're trying to speak or to translate you're in your mind you have to constantly do the translation thing it's a process and it takes time and so there is no fluency in the in speaking the new language but if you persevere as you go along, you start to pick up some fluency. You start to realize you, you, you can hear someone speak the language and your brain sort of automatically translates it. You can start speaking the language without having to stop every five or six words to figure out what to say next. We do this obviously from childhood without ever knowing it just picking up this as we go along, but if you try and attempt a new language, this is the process you need to go through and so it is with those who come to Christ. So it is with these Christians who have turned away from pagan idols to worship the Lord Jesus. It's going to take time for them to become fluent in living the gospel. It's going to take time and it's going to take effort. This is true for some of you today. You're not yet living fluently in the gospel and so it's going to take some time, it's going to take some effort. Now, having said that, and it's obviously true that time and effort are required to learn how to live the gospel fluently, ultimately, the reassurance we have is that God himself is going to see you into fluency. He himself is going to bring about a kind of sanctification that Paul's talking about here. This maturing in Christ will come as a gift of God's grace. It's not something that we have to stack up for ourselves. It's not something that we earn. So Paul says it this way in the the passage that Phil's going to look at next week in verse 23 to 24. He says, by way of a prayer for his church, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. So that's the promise, that this lofty vision of us coming to maturity in Christ, soul, mind, and body, that that will be achieved by the God who brought us to faith in the first place. He will see us through to completion. He will do it. But He will do it by way of some means. He will do it as we commit to making the daily effort to persevere in faith, to read my Bible when I'd rather look at Facebook, right? To say my prayers when I'd rather watch Netflix, right? To to take the time to invest in growing in Christlikeness. He's going to use several means and in our passage today he's going to mention three of those means. So that's what I want to look at just for the rest of our time. Three means that God uses to bring us to maturity in Christ. Three means that God uses to enable us to live the gospel fluently. This second language. So first, number one, he's going to use conscientious Christian leadership and teaching. Okay, verse 12 to 13. He says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So these that the first thing he's going to use, first thing the Lord is going to use to bring us to maturity is these leaders who teach and lead us in the faith. That's what he mentions there. Labor, leadership, and admonishing or teaching, preaching, exhortation. Now, I'm not going to talk about this now. Phil's going to pick that up next week. Uh, he was like, you know, the, pa- the pastor shouldn't have to do that bit because it just sounds like you're getting everyone to obey you. All right? And so um, we- we're going to leave that to him for-, for next week. all right? So um, I'm going to move on to the second and third means. The second one we have here is the mutual encouragement and accountability. So this is not the leaders that God has given to, to-, to lead and teach and admonish and labor. This is the whole church. We've picked up on this several times through this series, the the responsibility of the whole church to be the ministers of the church. And the ministry here that he's calling us to is mutual encouragement and accountability. All right, so let's take a look, verse 14 through to 15. He says, we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Okay, so this is a call to everyone in the church. If you call Red Door your home, then this is your ministry to everyone else. Now, obviously, this is going to be easier to do with the people that you know well, and this is where we want to have several multiple small groups and then within those small groups even smaller groups of twos and threes who know each other well enough that they can speak into one another's lives keep one another accountable all right but this can happen across the board as we seek to minister the gospel to one another this is going to help us ourselves speak the live the gospel fluently and it's going to encourage others to grow in Christ likeness as well, so you have got three things there. That he he highlights. He says, "Warn the idle." And it could be when he says "idle," he could be referring to people in Thessalonica who were not working and just relying on other Christians to 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 uh, pay their way taking advantage of the generosity of the Christian church in the first century. And so that's why back in, in chapter 4, he says, um, you encourage you, brothers and sisters to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we, as we have commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. So there I think he's talking to specifically to people who can work and aren't working because the Christians are so generous. He doesn't want any freeloaders. Those who can work should work so that the, the church can be more generous to those who can't, specifically widows, um, people with disabilities that prevent them from working, and so on. So it could be just referring to that. I think the translation's a little bit more broad than that. I think, what, and you might have a note in your Bible down the bottom here, but I think a, probably the better translation is for them to warn those who are undisciplined or disorderly. Those who aren't, as he said earlier in, this, uh, in, in chapter 4, who aren't, Obeying the commands of Christ that Paul has already given them back when he was with them. Those who are getting lax in their personal discipleship. He says warn them. Warn the undisciplined. Warn the unruly. Warn those who are walking away from obedience to Christ. And this of course is part of our obligation as Christians as we love one another. All of these exhortations are underpinned by the call for us to love one another. The call to warn, the call to give warning to those who are walking away from Jesus is a call to love them. I can tell you situations, particularly when I was younger, when it was a deeply loving thing for an older brother to take me aside and warn me about the path that I was going down and the, and the, and, and the propensity it had to lead me away from Jesus. That is a beautiful loving thing to do. Any parents in, in, in the room right now will know the, the call of love to warn children away from things that are going to endanger them. Of course, if the knife is hovering above the toaster, we're going to yell a warning to the child to put the knife down. That is exactly what Paul has in mind here. Have in mind the fact that Christians are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, and so it it is the role of every loving Christian person to warn those people, to call them back. He also says that we ought to comfort the discouraged. So sometimes people need warning because they're just heading away from Jesus. Sometimes people need encouragement because they're discouraged. They need comfort. They need an arm around the shoulder. They need strengthening. I love that word encouragement. It means to strengthen, edify, build up. That is a ministry that all of us have to seek out those who are discouraged. If you look with I mean, any level of intensity at people in our church at the moment, you will see a lot of discouraged people for obvious reasons the situation we find ourselves in at the moment is discouraging. And so the call to ministry right now, the ministry of comfort for the discouraged is just, it's on, it's on high right now for all of us. If you are to any degree sitting idle at the moment and wondering, well, I just wonder what God's calling me to, here's the answer. Comfort the discouraged. And thirdly, he says to help the weak. There are those who are going to find it hard to follow Jesus, those who are going to find it hard to, to live the gospel fluently, to learn that language. They're going to have natural encumbrances to that. Maybe they're a, a, a new convert, they're, they're married to a non-Christian, and that's just going to be a, a problem for them. It's going to make it hard for them to grow in their discipleship. It's going to be hard for them to find time to read the Bible if their spouse thinks it's a load of rubbish. right? Uh, for others, it's going to be a... A um, psychological impediment um, yeah, I mean you just fill in the blanks those who can't get along to church those who have these encumbrances that, that make them more, in this sense weak not able to do for themselves what others can do for themselves and so our call to them rather than to judge them or look down on them or condemn them is to help them I love watching, as you know now, the, the, the new pastoral care team we have. I love watching them respond to needs all over our church. And it's great to have them. They're like a model, an example for us. But they are only doing the work that all of us are actually called to. All of us. Called to this ministry of warning the undisciplined, comforting the discouraged, helping the weak, and then the governing principle that's underneath all of that is at the end there be patient with everyone. That, in the midst of even in the midst of warning, encouragement, comforting, our call is to be patient with everyone understanding that all of us is an incomplete person all of us is still learning the language of living the gospel none of us has arrived nor will we until Jesus arrives and so patience has to season all that we do all of our ministry full of patience for the people that we're ministering to See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Always pursuing it. Whatever is good, whatever is going to serve the mission of presenting everyone mature in Christ, pursue that. In our church, we call that our mission. To be a community of people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus. That's our mission. You could say it like this. Always pursue what is good for one another and for all. That's our mission. Okay, third means that God is going to use to bring us to maturity in Christ this is a fun one, kind of. It's the means of partying, praying, and praising. Verse 16 to 18, he says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I really love this new translation of the Bible, uh, which is called the, the Bible for Everyone and in the, the, the New Testament translation is by Tom Wright and, and here's how he renders this in kind of um, modern English. He says, verse 16 to 18, always celebrate, never stop praying, in everything be thankful. This is God's will for you in the Messiah, Jesus. Always celebrate, never stop praying, in everything be thankful. Thankful. This is one of the most powerful means that God uses to make us more like Jesus. One of the most powerful means He uses to bring us to maturity in Christ is through this daily expression of trust and delight in Him. Always celebrate. Never stop praying. In everything, be thankful. And here's the thing about this means. It's a means that God uses to tune us up, to make us more like the Lord, and it becomes more potent. It becomes more powerful when it's done in the midst of trials, when it's done in the midst of suffering. These people, Paul knows, are suffering greatly because of their new found trust in Jesus. And it's to them, those suffering Christians, that he says, rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. Really? In everything? In everything. It is one of the most curious things about history, particularly the history of the church, that the Christians who have suffered most have also been the most joyful. I think it's Eddie Izzard who has this bit, the comedian, he has a bit about singing in the Church of England, the Anglican Church and he says it's just it just he doesn't get it that the the christians who have suffered most like the slaves uh, in who who were who were stolen from africa and deported to north america you name just Endless examples of, of others Christians who have been persecuted have been the ones who have sung with the most gusto. And then he says, and yet in the Church of England, where everyone is, you know, has everything they want, they stand around with the, oh God, we think you are the best, right? And he's like, he doesn't get it, and 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 it's it's bizarre, but it's true. The Christians who have suffered the most greatly have been the ones who have sung the loudest. The ones who have actually fulfilled this command, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. To many of us, that seems like this, this kind of, well, yeah, maybe one day, I'm kind of busy right now. But for those who are suffering, this is everything. This means that God uses to make us more like Jesus, becomes more potent in the midst of persecution. I had the opportunity to take advantage of this means recently, and I, I missed it. I was talking to my friend and my, my mentor, Peter Adam, I was sharing with him this very difficult situation I was facing, and his advice to me, it was so annoying, his advice to me was to write out a prayer Giving thanks to God for the situation that I was in. Praising him for his wisdom in leading me into that situation. Giving thanks. And I never did it. He asked me to do that maybe six months ago and I haven't done it yet. I can't bring myself to do it. And I've missed the means that God would use to make me more like his son. we can jump into these means and, sh- get, and, and shower ourselves with God's grace, the sanctifying grace of God, or we can leave them aside and forego the blessing. That's the bizarre amount of freedom that God gives us as his children. Paul's exhortation to the church in Thessalonica and to us as a church this morning is, do not forego these means of grace. Don't miss it. All right, I'm going to leave the second part of this sermon to Phil coming in next week. But I encourage you to read ahead, read through the rest of this chapter. It's just one exhortation after another, this vision that Paul has for us to live the gospel fluently. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for this word to us. I thank you for your commitment to us that you will see us to maturity in Christ. You will work day by day to make us more like your son. And that is our deep desire, and yet we war with ourselves and our desires. Sometimes we feel like, yes, we'll do anything. We'll do anything to grow in our faith and our trust. And other times we forego that and prefer fleshly things, prefer pride and prefer comfort and prefer self-sufficiency. So please forgive us, Lord, when we choose ourselves, our own lordship, our own plans, our own designs for maturity over the ones that you have for us. Lord, please help us as we grow to take advantage, full advantage of the means that you've given us to grow in maturity in Christ. And I pray for us as a church that that mission that we have to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. That mission that you've given us in these very words of scripture. To warn the undisciplined. To comfort the discouraged. To help the weak. To be patient with everyone. To pursue the good all of the time to make all of life all about Jesus. Lord, please bless that mission. Lord, please help us to take it up and to do it by the power of your Spirit, for your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.